This month we've been talking about living as exiles. We've been talking about the fact that often Christians must live in cultures that are suspicious, skeptical, even hostile towards Christianity. Thankfully, our culture that we live in isn't nearly as suspicious of or skeptical of or hostile towards Christianity, or at least it hasn't been in the past as other cultures certainly are today and have been over the years. The culture and the Christians that Peter was writing to when he wrote the first letter, uh, his first epistle, and he wrote to those Christians to encourage them and build them up and tell them how to live their lives, were living in cultures that were hostile towards Christianity, were suspicious of them, thought they were up to no good, thought they were evildoers. And so Peter writes to them to encourage them to tell them, you're exiles here now, you're sojourners here now. And this is how, as exiles and sojourners in the world, you need to live your life among the Gentiles or among the unbelievers. And so we've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, and talking about four principles for living as God's exiles in the world. The first one was remember who you are. And we are, as we've talked about so many times over the last few weeks, we are a chosen what race. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. And just think about that. For so many of the people that Peter was writing to, they they believed that because a lot of them were probably Jews. And so they were those things, or they thought they were those things because they were simply descendants of Abraham. But now in Christ Jesus, they are these things. And the Gentile Christians are these things. They are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God because they have faith in Jesus Christ. Because their sins have been forgiven and they've been added to the people of God. And so... We have to remember that we too, because of our faith in Jesus, we are a chosen race, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If we're going to live in a world that isn't always accepting of who we are and what we believe and how we live, then we have to remember who we are. Secondly, we talked about the need to proclaim His excellencies, that that's why we are made these things, that that's why we are a chosen race, that's why we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, to go into the world and tell the world who God is and what God, through Jesus has done to save us. And then we talked last week about the need to abstain from the passions of the flesh, not to indulge in sinful lifestyles that maybe we indulged in before or that the world indulges in, that if we're going to be Christians, that we cannot live lives that look like everybody else's lives. We have to be different. There are things that we do not do because we are Christians. But I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I kind of thought that that was basically there are two parts of Christian living, what you believe and what you don't do, right? Uh, Why are you a Christian? Well, because I believe these things. Uh, Why else are you a Christian? Well, because I don't do these things. I don't cuss and I don't get drunk and I don't look at this and I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that. But not so much about what we do. 
That so often is lacking in what we think of about living a Christian life. So fourth, today we're going to talk about let them see your good deeds. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let them see your good deeds. Now, again, as we said a minute ago, I kind of feel weird about talking about living as exiles and sojourners and how we're so much different than the people around us when sometimes it doesn't really feel like that, does it? For some of you, it does. For some of you, when you go to school or you go to work or you're with your neighbors, you very much feel like an outsider, like you uh, don't belong, like you're different and strange because of who you are, what you believe, what you do, and what you don't do. But for so many of us, we, we pretty much fit in, right? Because we live in America and our culture here has been, number one, so influenced by Christianity that that it doesn't seem sometimes that we are outsiders. But I also want us to pay attention to the fact that sometimes we don't feel like outsiders or exiles because Christianity has been so affected by the culture. It's true that our culture has been affected by Christianity, but sometimes our Christianity has been affected by our culture. Too often we have assimilated And we've become like the world. And sometimes we don't even know why we do what we do. Do we do this because that's the cultural thing to do? That's what people around here do? Or we do this because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So part of this conversation has to be about distinctiveness has to be about the fact that as Christians, we need to be distinct from the world. We need to be different than unbelievers in how we live our lives. But all too often, when we start talking about distinctiveness, we think in order to be more distinct, we have to be less connected. We have to be more isolated. And so we tend to think, well, if I'm going to be more distinctive and I'm going to be different than the people around me, then I have to separate myself from the people around me and I have to be less connected to them. And then somebody else will come along and say, but but don't we need to be making an impact on the people around us? Don't we need to be connected to them? And so someone will advocate for more connectedness. And we think, well, if I'm going to be more connected, then I need to be less distinctive. And we have, to, we have a tendency to think that it's one way or the other. Should we be more connected and less distinctive? Or should we be more distinctive and less connected? The answer is that Jesus is calling his people to greater distinctiveness and greater connectedness. That we've got to be a people who know our neighbors, who love our neighbors, who serve our neighbors, and at the same time live unique, distinctive lifestyles. And that can be rather uncomfortable sometimes, can't it? Because we're going to be connected to them and we're going to know them and we're going to be involved in their lives and they're going to be involved in our lives and it's going to become very obvious, sometimes very awkward and uncomfortable that we do things a little bit differently. And they're going to be sometimes suspicious and skeptical because we are living in a culture that is becoming more, increasingly more, skeptical and suspicious 
of Christians, especially Christians who stand for things, especially Christians who have convictions, especially Christians who say, no, this behavior or this is right or this is wrong, and they stand up for things and they're outspoken about things and they're bold about things. We've gotten the reputation of being hateful, being bigoted and biased. So we need to talk about that, don't we? We need to talk about how do we live in the world where we're connected to our neighbors, but we're also incredibly distinctive. And again, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, before we begin talking about that. 1 Peter 2, 9-12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's kind of break that down and work through that last verse, especially verse 12, for just a few minutes this morning. That first phrase, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Think about that for a second. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, and here I don't think he's using the word Gentiles in a racial way, Jew and Gentile. He's saying those who are God's people, those who are the chosen race and the royal priesthood and the holy nation, the people who belong to God, those are spiritually Jews, that's us, and there are those who are spiritually Gentiles, that's the world, the unbelievers. And Peter says, conduct yourselves in a way that's honorable. And I think about what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, and he said, give thought, give thought, plan it out, be strategic, think ahead, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That's powerful. We'll stop and think about that for just a second. Paul says, as Christians, Peter says, as Christians, you need to think about what is honorable in the sight of all people, including those in the world. And you need to conduct yourself in a way that the world even will look at that and say, well, that's good. That's honorable. They're good people. They do what's right. And we have to put ourselves in their shoes. We have to see ourselves through their eyes. We have to ask from their perspective, what is this going to look like? If I say this, or I do that, or I treat somebody in this way or that way, from their perspective, what's it going to look like? Is it going to look like an honorable action or a dishonorable action? Now, there are times, don't get me wrong, where we have to do what God says is right no matter what. Absolutely. But when we're conducting ourselves out in the world, when you're doing business transactions, when you're dealing with teachers or classmates, when you're this afternoon out to a restaurant and you have a waitress or a waiter that's serving you, you have to look at yourself through their eyes. You have to look at things from their perspective and say from their perspective, how do they view me? How do they view, how do they hear, how do they see what I'm doing and what I'm saying? And do they see it as honorable? 
This attitude of, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's not biblical, right? That we have to conduct ourselves in the world in an honorable way. That we have to think and consider, plan ahead, be strategic about doing what is honorable in the sight of all. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. Now I want you to think about what it would be like in the first century Greco-Roman world that Peter is writing to, and you've got people who have accepted Christianity, who've become Christians, and now they're living a very different life than their family members and their neighbors, than the the government around them. They're, They're living very different, distinctive lives, and they're seen with suspicion and skepticism and hostility. And so some of the most vulnerable people One would be the poor, especially, wouldn't it? Especially as they interact with the government, right? Another would be women who are married to unbelievers. That would be another vulnerable group. Another would be slaves who belonged to unbelievers. And and so their lives are potentially getting, at the very least, very hard, and at the worst, very dangerous. And so I want you to think about what Peter is telling them to do and how he's telling them to live. And over the next few verses, as we go on from here, Peter tells them, them, and and especially in these distinct groups, how to conduct themselves. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And, And telling them to submit to the government and do what the government tells them to do. 15 through 17. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Look at verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Pay attention to those words. Honor. Live good lives. Live good lives, and by living good lives, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Wow. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard, isn't it? Honor the emperor? Respect my master? Not just the good masters, not just the the benevolent ones, but the ones who are unjust and unkind and not gentle. Be respectful. Show them honor. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You see the theme that's running throughout here? Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So when people revile you, when people speak evil of you, when people hurt you, hurt your feelings, don't give them back what they gave to you. Bless them. Speak good. Speak respectful. Be, show them honor. 
do good to them. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Again, one of the themes throughout 1 Peter is Peter saying, don't give them any excuse to harm you. Don't give them any excuse to put you in jail, any legitimate excuse, because if you do wrong and you fight back and you're just giving them what they give to you, well, then they're going to persecute us and you're going to give the church a black eye and, and, and you're not going to be helping the cause of Christ. So this is how you are to live your life. And after all, if you do that and you live such good and above board kind of lives, who's going to harm you for doing good? Who's going to harm you for bringing a basket of cookies to them? I don't know if they had cookies then, but who's going to harm you for doing good to people? Obviously, very few, if anybody, is going to. But he says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, it doesn't mean we're quiet. It doesn't mean we don't have conviction. And it doesn't mean we're not bold. And it doesn't mean we don't stand up for the truth about who God is and what God has done. But when they ask you, why? Why do you live this way? Why do you do this? Why don't you join us in the things you used to join us in? Why don't you come out with us and have a good time? Why don't you do this? Why are you so weird now? Why do you live the way you live? Tell them. Tell them about God. Tell them about what he's done for you. But, look at the last part, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is what it is to live honorable lives among the Gentile world. Respect, gentleness, honor, blessing. Church, I think we need to learn that lesson, don't you? We've had it really easy for a long time where pretty much everybody around us for a very long time has seen things the way we've seen things. They've understood morality the way we understand morality. And even if they were unbelievers, we pretty much could get along about almost everything. But now things are beginning to shift. And our neighbors and our co-workers, our schoolmates, they don't see things the way we do anymore. And we're finding ourselves more on the outside and more seen with skepticism, more suspicious of who we are, what we're really up to, what's your agenda here. We've got to be a people who tell the truth, who speak the truth, but who do so with gentleness, honor people, be respectful of people, be gentle and kind with people, and bless people. That's what it is to live this kind of life. That's what Peter was calling them to. That's what God is calling all of His chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people that belong to God. This is how He calls us to live, especially in environments that are difficult, right? And we say, well, you just don't know how hard... Yes, yes, yes. They knew even more than we could possibly imagine. Most of us can't even imagine what it would be like to go home and tell our parents, I'm a Christian now, and they say, then hit the road, I don't want to ever see you again. Or to go to the marketplace and no one will trade with you or sell to you or buy from you because you are a Christian. 
Most of us don't have any idea what it would be like to, to be in a court of law and not to have any rights because we are a Christian. Thankfully, we don't live in an environment that that's, it's that hard. But he tells those Christians to honor everyone, to show respect, to be gentle, to be kind. And if they were supposed to live that way, shouldn't we be that living that same way? Number two. Next phrase, they may see your good deeds. That they may see your good deeds. Tonight at Elevate, I hope everybody's going to be back tonight, if you can. We're going to talk about some of the good deeds that this congregation is busy doing in our community. That's who we need to be, what we need to be doing. We need to be proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And we need to be doing good Deeds. We need to have a reputation for doing good deeds. People need to say about Christian people, I don't know about that whole Jesus thing. I don't know about that guy nailed on a cross, buried in a tomb, coming back to life. That may seem a little strange to some people, but even if they think that seems strange, they look at our lives and they say, but wow, his people are such good people. They do so many good things for so many people. They bless so many people's lives. They're always serving someone else. Now, don't get me wrong, and and I want to emphasize this every time we talk about good works. Because when we talk about good deeds and doing good works and how Christians need to have a reputation for good works and this is what it looks like to live out a Christian life, sometimes we're tempted to say, so... If I'm really good and I do lots of good things, does that mean I get to go to heaven when I die? It's the wrong way of thinking about it, isn't it? Why do we do good deeds? We do good deeds because Jesus did good deeds to us. He looked down at undeserving, rebellious humanity. And he took on human flesh. And he came down and he was one of us. He was, as Richard said, the ultimate exile. He left heaven, he came to earth, and he was spit on, and he was harassed, he was rejected, he was nailed to a cross. Why? For our sake, he became poor, so that through him, we might become rich. He got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet, and then told them to go and do likewise. We go out and we serve people. Not asking, well, are they worthy of my service? Are they worthy of me doing good deeds to them? Do they deserve for me to do good deeds to them? If I do good deeds to them, are they going to reciprocate? Are they going to listen up? That's not the question. The question is, what has God done for you? Undeservedly. What has God done for you by His grace and through His mercy? And so now we go out and do the same to others. We go out and we serve. We go out and we help. We go out and we bless both congregationally and individually. And we find people who need blessing, find people who need to be served, find people in need, just like the song we just sang, each day I'll do a golden deed by helping those who are in need. That's what Jesus did for me, and so now we're going to go out and do that for others. Now, look at, finally, the last part of the phrase, that these Gentiles may glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there's some debate amongst translators and commentators on what that means, whether the day of visitation is their day of their conversion or the day that Jesus comes back. 
I kind of believe that it's the latter, but it does imply that they are converted, doesn't it? That when Jesus comes back, these people who used to mock you as evildoers, who used to say, I don't know about those Christians, I don't know what they're up to, they, they seem a, a strange bunch, those people would be converted to Christ so that when Jesus comes back, they too will be glorifying God. That's, that's our goal, isn't it? That we go out into the world and we live such good lives that we break down walls. Walls of suspicion. Walls of skepticism. Walls of hostility. And people say, i got to figure out what it is about this Christianity stuff. You know, right now, people that work in Eastern European missions, EEM, have said that their work in Europe amongst Muslim refugees that are coming out of hostile environments and coming to Europe are being met with missionaries with Bibles and food and blankets. And these people are coming out of these war-torn places to say, I want to know about this Christianity. I want to know about this religion of love. I want to know about this religion of mercy. I want to know how I can know God. That's how we've got to live our lives. That they may glorify God on the day of visitation. One translation puts it this way. People who don't believe are living all around you. They may say that you are doing wrong. So live such good lives that they will see the good you do and they will give glory to God on the day he comes. Or another paraphrase translation says, live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. And isn't this reminding us of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16? He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's, that's what we're doing it for, right? We're doing it so that not only we can bring glory to God, but we want them to bring glory to God. See, when you see somebody out in the world who is living a lifestyle that they shouldn't be living, doing something that they ought not to be doing, we, we ought to love them so much that we're willing, if we have the opportunity, to serve them, to do good to them. Galatians 6 and verse 10, do good as we have the opportunity, do good to all men, especially the household of faith. We ought to look for opportunities to do good for them and good that they can see so that they can see the church and they can know that these Christian people, these church people do good and that eventually some of them might be won over to Jesus so that on the day he comes back, they'll be with us. They'll be saved. They'll be right with God and they can give glory to God in heaven. So that's the phrase I want us to walk away with this morning. Do good deeds to God's glory. Go out this week and find somebody that you can do good to. Do good to them, not to manipulate them, not because you see them as a project, but because you see them as a person in need, just as God saw you as a person in need. And if they ask you, why are you doing this? Tell them. Tell them it's because you love them. Tell them it's because God loved you. Tell them that you're just trying to be the kind of person that Jesus calls you to be. Give glory to God 
Not only because we are saved by Him and we need to praise Him and give glory to Him and give Him all of the credit and honor, but also so that someday that person might join us in giving glory to God. And be back here tonight if you can as we talk about some of the things that we're doing congregationally. I hate to even say the word we. I haven't been here long enough to say we are doing these things because I've just barely scraped the surface of some of the good works that this congregation is doing. But we need more help. We need to be busier. We need to do more. I want to be able to go down to McDonald's down the street or I want to be able to go across the street to one of these schools and I want to be able to ask them, what do you know about this McDermott Road Church here? What do you know about the Church of Christ? And I want to hear back from them the good reputation that we have of doing good works to God's glory. I want everybody in Plano and McKinney and Frisco and Allen and all around this community, I'd love for everybody in DFW to know that we're the kind of people who, yes, stand up for what's right and who are bold about God and what God has done and God's standard of living and and who are unique and living distinctive lives but who are so full of good works, who are so full of honor and respect and gentleness that people know who we are and give glory to our God who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. If you haven't come out of darkness and you're still living in sin and death, we beg you, respond to the invitation. Jesus loves you. And He wants to bring you out of darkness and into light. He wants to bring you out of death into life eternal. That journey begins with baptism, but then when we come up out of the water, we live these kind of lives where we remember who we are, where we proclaim His excellencies, where we abstain from the passions of the flesh, and where we let the world see our good deeds. At least that's how we're supposed to be living. If some of us have fallen away from that path and need to come back, We want to encourage each other. There's a room in the back after services. The elders would love to pray with you. You can come forward. We're in this together to live as exiles in the world. If we can help you, won't you come forward now as we stand and sing?